theme, the ultimate priority, the ultimate priority. The ultimate priority is laid out for us by our Lord, loving God. There is no Christianity. There's no such Christianity that exists without love for God. Our worship in the end boils down to this essential reaction, response of love. The desire to live the Christian life flows out of love for God. There are some who wrongly see the God of the Old Testament as the God of wrath and then the God of the New Testament as the God of love. That's a wrong and false view of God. Exodus 34, 6 says that God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Old Testament, Exodus 34, 6. You find those truths in Numbers 4, 14, 18, Deuteronomy 4, 31, Nehemiah 9, 17, Psalm 86, verse 5, verse 15. In all of these passages, God's love for us results in our devotion, trust, and praise for him. Are you with me? In Deuteronomy 4:29, God's people are to seek him with all their heart and soul. And in Joshua 22, verse 5, love for God leads to obedience and service with fullness of heart and soul. The same truth continues in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we see that uh, a, lo a love for God is connected with drawing near to him. You can jot down Hebrews 10, 22 and James 4, 8. Love for God is connected uh, to our oneness with God. 1 John 4, 16. Love for God, according to Romans 8, 28, is connected to experiencing his goodness in our lives. All things work for good together for good for those who love God, right? So love for God and for Christ defines the essence of being a Christian and it is the basis for every aspect of the Christian life. If you're saved, you love God, right? He put his love into you the moment you were saved. The love of God was shed abroad in your heart by the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, 5, the moment you were saved. We started looking at this wonderful passage. I hope you have your Bibles open since you know I don't preach from any other book. We started looking at this wonderful passage and uh, last week, we looked at verses 28 through uh, 30 on last week. And 
we saw the scribe who, a, 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 who asked this question. This is an uh, expert in the law. This is a theologian. This is a lawyer. <laughs> this is one who is in a very high position uh, religiously. This is one, uh, my brothers and sisters, who is a, who's very educated as well. This is the man that asked the question. This is a man who asked the question with all of that going for him, and he was lost. He was lost. We saw the uh, stimulus for the question. He, he heard Jesus disputing. Uh, uh, he, he heard how Jesus answered the, the Sadducees concerning the resurrection that they didn't believe in. And they embraced, remember, only the first five books of Moses. And Jesus argued the resurrection from the book of Exodus. <laughs> One of the first five books. And you saw how wisely Jesus answered them, and that stimulated his question. We saw the subject of his question, which commandment is the most important? It's not, this is not a, asking which commandment chronologically comes first, but which commandment is most important, most supreme? Remember, that was a very hotly debated uh, question among uh, theologians of Jesus' day um, among the rabbis and often asked question that was asked of rabbis to, to summarize the law. Give me, give, give me a summary of all the commandments. He asked the right one, didn't he? And Jesus told him, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all soul and with all your mind, with all your strength. We saw there that we have to love God for who he is. First of all, we have to love him for who he is. Love for God doesn't start with uh, his gifts and his blessings. It starts with him. Yeah, love for God is relational. It starts with a relationship with him. So whether he gives you what you want, your love is not contingent on getting what you want. You, you love him for who he is. See, his worthiness doesn't, he's not worthy because of what he does. God is worthy by virtue of who he is, you see. So you love God for who he is, and then we saw secondly that you love God with all you are. So, and we looked at the comprehensiveness of the love of God and sought to break that down for you the way Jesus broke it down for this scribe. It's a comprehensive love of God. That's the priority of the great commandment, love God. Jesus always gives more than we ask. He didn't ask for the next part that we're about to see today. But Jesus always gives more than we ask. 
because Jesus had just given him what he asked and just said, love God, he would not have had a right understanding of what love for God really means. So, today, we saw the priority of his love. We saw the purposeful question in verses uh, in verse 28, and then we saw the priority uh, of the greatest commandment, excuse me, in verse 29 and 30. Let's continue with our P's, okay? <laughs> Notice the practicality of the great commandment. The practicality of the great commandment. Mr. Newby's out of town today, so... Uh, I guess it means you have to listen harder or something, I don't know. <laughs> but the most important thing is what I'm saying out of the Word of God. If you, if you miss my point or sub-point, make sure you get what I'm saying out of the Word of God, okay? Of course, I, I seek to bring my point out of that. The practicality of the great commandment. And that starts for us in verse... Uh, 31, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Stop right there. I want you to notice first the practical connection, the practical connection. Now, Jesus is still talking about the priority commandment. Follow me. Remember, first of all, Jesus quoted love for God out of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now he quotes out of Leviticus 19 verse 18. That's the second part of his answer. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now Jews are familiar with this. Okay. So, you may ask, where is the genius in Jesus' answer? The genius in Jesus' answer was this. The thoughts of loving God and loving humankind had been voiced by other rabbis and scribes, but this was the first time any rabbi had fused these two specific scriptural references together. In other words, Deuteronomy 6 brought together with Leviticus 19. No one had done that but Jesus. <laughs> so Jesus says, the Shema of Israel, Deuteronomy 6, loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, uh, is complemented by love for your neighbor. You with me? Love for God, or love of God, expresses itself in love for your neighbor. Now, Jesus' answer avoids the danger of mysticism 
you know, this detached, disembodied love for God. You know how people say, and, but you see no evidence and no action. Oh, I love God. You can't tell me I do, I do not love God. I love God. But there's no love for the church. There's no love for his word. There's no love for uh, uh, prayer. There's no, but so, so, so Jesus makes sure uh, uh, that, that, that he just smashes mysticism. No, this is not a dis detached, disembodied love. But he also smashes humanism. Humanism uh, acts towards humanity without reference to God and without understanding that human beings are created in the image of God. So uh, uh, humanism says, I, 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 I love other people, but I have no interest and no love for this God you're talking about. Jesus smashes that. Because when he fuses both together, love for God, love for your neighbor, they are inseparable. See the connection. Notice the order in which Jesus declares the commandments. Love for God, according to the greatest mind that has ever walked the earth, is a prerequisite to loving your neighbor. So, we don't love God by rules, but we love by relationships. And a loving relationship to God enables us to have a loving relationship to others. <laughs> now, this is not a new Greek word here for love in verses 30 and 31. Remember, it's the form of love that is characteristic of God himself, right? So, I am, you are, to love others with the same kind of love with which God has loved us. Right? Okay, I heard you. Julian Brother Odom. I am to love <laughs> others with an intelligent love, with a love of the will, with a love of purpose, with a love of choice, with a love of sacrifice, with a love of obedience. Now, whoever does not find the source of love in God will fail to exhibit God's unique love to your neighbor. So love of God is prior to love of the neighbor. And love, lo love for God actually establishes the possibility of loving your neighbor. This is important, beloved. Only true Christians can love their neighbors like this. Love for God releases love of God. <laughs> the, the, two are, the, the two are linked together. Jesus brings them together. And, and, and watch this. 1 John 4.20, John expands upon this and says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. That's strong language. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen 
cannot love God whom he has not seen. They're together. They're, they're practically connected. Jesus even said, the command includes loving our enemies. He taught that in the Sermon on, uh, on the Mount in, 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 in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 43 through 47. See, you could not have convinced a Pharisee that he didn't love God. You could not have convinced a scribe that he didn't, did not love God or any of the Sadducees. But Jesus is saying, not only do you not, uh, the way I know you don't love God, because you don't love your neighbor. And remember, Jesus actually illustrated that for them in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, that's the practical connection, practical connection, love for God and love for neighbor are inseparable. Right? Love for neighbor flows out of love for God. Love for God expresses itself in love for your neighbor. Love for God is the fountain of love that flows to your neighbor. It's tight, but it's right. <laughs> you see the practical connection? I want you to notice, secondly, the practical cost. The practical cost. Note, note the text again. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? First, let's be clear about who our neighbor is. Now, Jesus did answer that question, question in the parable of the Good Samaritan. In Luke chapter 10, verses 30 through 37, Jesus made the word neighbor mean anyone who needs our help or who in any way helps us. So, this command shows that love is more than feelings, isn't it? It involves the will, it involves the decision, and it, it is shown in acts of kindness and mercy. And, and to love is to will the highest eternal good for a person and demonstrate that in action. You bring the love of God to bear on your neighbor. And my neighbor and your neighbor is not just the person who's my friend. He's not just the person who looks like me or runs in my circles. According to Jesus, your neighbor is anyone who has skin. <laughs> Woo, this one of those, uh, I can't say man, but I can't say out, right? Now, we need to properly understand loving your neighbor as yourself. And I need you to uh, note that Jesus does not command us to love ourselves. That is not the command in the text. You don't see that in the text. This is not an invitation to be preoccupied with ourselves before we consider others. This is a call to self-giving love where we treat others just as we would like to be 
treated. And the point is that we are to see others as people with needs, as we see ourselves as a person with needs. Right? Love for self is uh, assumed. Right? You take care of your needs. Right? Nobody has to tell you that. It comes pretty natural. <laughs> when, you, when you think about it, especially connected with uh, Mark 8.34, you know Jesus is not commanding us to, to, to love ourselves because it, it, it's, it's sort of a mysterious paradox because the same Jesus who says, love to, uh, uh, your neighbor as yourself also says, deny yourself and die to self. Mark 8.34, right? Watch this. The more I rightly love myself, the more I will deny, deny myself and love others. <laughs> I will serve the others, the needs of others with all the energy, passion, and zeal with which I attempt to meet my own needs. But I will not do that. Don't miss it if I don't love God supremely. I can't love others genuinely if I don't love God supremely. But as I do seek to love God supremely, I am enabled to love others genuinely. I thought you said it was the practical cost. It is. It costs to love others. Sometimes it costs a lot to love others. And, and, and remember, as, as Jesus even answers questions from scribes, Sadducees, Pharisees, he's also discipling his disciples, right? He's also teaching them. You remember in John 4, he was teaching them about who the neighbor is. He gave this uh, um, amazing parable in, in, in Luke 10 about the Good Samaritan, who the neighbor, neighbor is. Then he demonstrated it in his action. He told his disciples, I need to go through Samaria. I can see them like, he's got to be kidding me. Go through with all those half-breeds in, in Samaria? All those mixed breeds in Samaria, he's talking about going through Samaria? Yeah, Jesus says, I'm going through, and uh, by the way, go, 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 go into town and get some food. I'm hungry. <laughs> and what did he do? He met his neighbor at, at Jacob's well. A neighbor whom the disciples would not have considered a neighbor. He saved her. Disciples came back and said, oh, we, we have the food. And Jesus says, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me. I already ate. <laughs> right? See, our neighbor is anyone with skin. And it is a self-giving love, and it is a love 
by which we must deny ourselves for our neighbors. You know, I looked at the context of Leviticus 19, the context in which uh, this command was uh, originally given. Um, and when you look at the surrounding context of Leviticus 19, you can very practically and easily see what it means to love your neighbor. And you can look at it when you go home, Leviticus 19, verses 10 through 18. But it involves caring for people who are poor. It means not stealing or taking from them. It means not lying to them, not deceiving one another. It means not swearing falsely. It means not defrauding your neighbor. It means not holding back the wages of a hired man. It means not cursing the deaf or putting a stumbling block in front of the blind. It means not hating your brother or sister in your heart. It means rebuking your neighbor uh, frankly so that you will not share in his or her guilt. It means not seeking revenge or bearing a grudge against one, one of your people, but loving your neighbor as yourself and is all uh, 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 finished with this phrase, I am the Lord. <laughs> That's what it keeps saying. I am the Lord. All, all of what I just mentioned is the way you want to, want to be treated, right? Yeah, it's the way you want to be treated, right? We have to love those around us with the same kind of love. And you see, it is not mere sentimental or emotional love. We have to love people with a love that actively seeks their good. It's not enough to talk about it. Demonstrate it. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about. In English, we speak in what is known as person, right? If I'm referring to myself, I will say I am. That is known as the first person, correct? If I was speaking to you, I might say you are. That is known as the second person. Then uh, if I was speaking of another, I might say he is. And that is known as the third person. Now, in English, we always have self First, let me give you a point here. That's not the way it was in Hebrew. That is not the way it was in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it is actually just the opposite. In Hebrew, first person says, he is. Second person says, you are. Third person says, I am. That's the Hebrew understanding. He is, you are, I am. That's the formula for the Christian life. <laughs> if I learn to place God in the first person, others in the second person, and if I'm willing to take the third person, then I can have my life in order. Oh, y'all didn't hear me. <laughs> right? But we like the English, don't we? But the English is wrong. 
see, the cost is always self-denial. Always. Always. Your flesh was, you want to say this, you want to do this, you want to, you want, you want to react rather than respond. You want, you, you know, it's always self-denial. If Deacon Jess is uh, upset with me for the wrong reason and, and is sinful, what is his greatest need? For me to be upset with him and be sinful too? No. His greatest need is to have the love of God through me come to bear on his sinfulness. So that means I'm going to tell him the truth, but I'm going to tell him the truth, and then I'm going to give him a hug. I'm not going to tell him the truth like this. <laughs> oh, going home. It's always a denial of self. It's always costly because that's what we see in Christ. Okay, before you get to Calvary, before you get to Calvary, before you get to the cross, before you get to the wrath of God being satisfied as we think about Christmas, do you understand something of what it means for Christ to become human? That's like an elephant becoming an ant. You understand uh, something of what it means in the incarnation for Christ to become human while remaining fully God. Do you know what he left? And watch this, I'm not, I'm not first and foremost talking about heaven. John said he was face to face with the Father. Jesus in his prayer in John 17 said he, he wants the glory back that he had with the Father before the world began. It's always costly. Then he went to Calvary. Jesus is not, didn't simply put up with stuff. Jesus loved, didn't he? It was always in reference to his father. Uh, I came to do the works of him who sent me. It was always he is. Right? The practical cost, love your neighbor as yourself. We need to be asking, how does God want me to love people even when they're difficult to, difficult to love and even when they're not? How does God want me to love them? <laughs> Ooh, this type of this right. It's a practical connect, connection I got. Listen, it's not that I simply that I should be asking that question. I must ask that question. You know why I must ask that question? Because Jesus fuses them both together and it's an inseparable connection. And since it's an inseparable connection and I say I love God, I can't pick and choose who I'm going to love 
my neighbor, and I can't determine how that love is going to look because it's, a, it's the love of God. It's not even a love that uh, originated with me. It's a love that originated with God. And if I'm going to love God, I, I must love my neighbor. So if I'm going to love God and love my neighbor, I better be asking, how does God want me to love them? Lest my love for God is only my love and not his. This is a Christmas sermon, isn't it? You with me? You see the practicality of this? The practical connection, the practical cause. Notice the practical completion in the text. Jesus said, back to Mark, there is no other commandment greater than these. Why in the world would Jesus say that? No other commandment greater than these. I learned from the Bible why he said that, and I actually learned it many, many, many years ago. These two commandments, loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself, actually summarizes the Ten Commandments. Watch this. You know the first part of Jesus' answer, loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, summarize the first four of the Ten Commandments. If you want to get the first four, just do what Jesus said. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And you, and you know that Jesus' answer Coming out of Leviticus 19:18, loving your neighbor as yourself, summarize commandments five through ten. <laughs> That's the final six, right? Found in Exodus 20, verses 12 through 17. So if we love God like He commanded us, we're, we're not going to break the first four. And we love our neighbor as we should, like ourselves, we will not break the other six. <laughs> so Jesus says, on these two, on these two, hang all the commandments. <laughs> so it's difficult. Well, what does it mean to love God in this situation? Because I've got to give the love of God to the person who is difficult to love. So what does it mean? Let me think scripturally. Let me think biblically what it means and apply it in this situation. Right? Say amen, flowers. <laughs> Jesus said in Matthew 22, 41, uh, uh, the whole Old Testament could be summarized in these two commandments. We need to learn to love him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Get these two right and watch the church boom. Get these two right and watch uh, the command to go into all the world and make disciples, boom, blow up. Get these two right and watch your families blossom like crazy. Get these two right and watch your relationships blossom like crazy. Get these two wrong. It's a recipe for a mess.
Get them right. Watch God work. That's the practical completion. You got that? They're inseparable, aren't they? It's costly, isn't it? It's not something, watch this. By the way, as Deacon Jack says sometime, big, I better, I better pretext this. This is going to hurt. This is not something that you need to sit back and wait and wait until you learn enough theology and go to enough Bible studies and discipleship classes and Sunday school classes and enough devotional time on your own. Then you say, now I'm ready to do it. That's wrong. That's, that's not how you grow in love. You know how I'm going to grow in my love for Deacon Jenks. If, 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 if he and I, if he's difficult for me to love, I'm going to grow in love for G Deacon Jacks through a, applying the Nike commercial to my life. Just do it. And here's the, here's the application. I grow in love for him by obeying the command. And as I obey the command, I grow in my love for him. But if, I, if I'm sitting back waiting, and I'm not obeying, I'm waiting, I guess, for God to zap me with his word or something, or to give me that home. Give me that old-time religion or whatever. But he said, Pastor, can it be real if I'm not feeling it? If it's just a feeling, no. But since it's not, yes. Love is an act of the will. Right? Sometimes feelings are galloping behind you and say, let's go. Sometimes you got to say, come on, we're going. No, no, this is what I'm going to do because I know God's word commandment and I, and I love God and I want to show love to my neighbor. So you have, to, you, you have to do your feelings sometimes like my mom used to do us when it was time for us to get, a, get our shots and we went into the health center. I wasn't galloping behind her. No, 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 I, I'm crying, I'm, I, I'm all like this, and she gets one of us on the elevator, and then Cynthia gets off. Uh, uh, and then, then Randy's trying to help Cynthia get on, then I get off. But guess what? Before the end of the day, we got our shots. And at the end of this service, you ought to show that love. But my feelings are not, come on, get, on, get in here. <laughs> oh God <laughs> right blessed are you if you do John 7 17 okay you want to grow you grow, in a, you, you grow through obedience notice the positive response to the great commandment this blows me away 
Look at the text, beloved. Just, just notice what, what, how this guy responds. He says in verse 32, and the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. He's sincere, but I'm like, come on, you got to tell Jesus he's right? You obviously have not come to grips with who he is. Of course he's right. <laughs> but he's sincere. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. So notice first uh, the doctrine in his response. He received the answer. He commended Jesus for his true and insightful answer. He realized that after all the Pharisees wrangling about the laws, the answer had been amazingly summarized by Christ. You are right. He reaffirmed the Shema, uh, uh, quoted from Deuteronomy, saying that he is one. Uh, Jews would not use God's name because of, out of respect. So he said, you're right, he is one. And he then added, besides him, there is no other. That echoes Deuteronomy 4.35. He's, he's acknowledging Jesus as a true teacher or interpreter of the Torah. Wow. You're right. He's standing in the courtyard, the temple courtyard, and he says, Jesus, that's sound doctrine. You are right. God is one. Jesus, you are right. God is supreme. He acknowledged right doctrine, didn't he? But notice also the devotion, the right devotion in his response. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Do you realize, coming from this guy, who was associated with the Sanhedrin and the temple, an endorsement of superiority of priestly sacrifices to all forms of worship, that would have been his endorsement. But this guy says, you're right, Jesus. Loving God is first. The very offering he referred to were the kind that was consumed by fire rather than eaten by worshipers, which meant that this was an offering that was solely dedicated wholly to God. And here's what he's, he's saying. Even the most sacred duties doesn't take precedent over love for God unless they are expressions of love for God. Nobody in the Sanhedrin would have said that. This man had been wrapped up in sacrifices and offerings all of his life. This was part of his religion. But he says love for God exceeds all of that. It almost sounds like First uh, Corinthians 13, doesn't it? Loving devotion to God means everything. This man has understood a truth that eludes many people today.
God is a spirit, and he can only be approached by a heart filled with love for him. Empty worship, external rituals mean nothing. This guy, get, this guy says right doctrine, right devotion. Yeah, that's right, Jesus. How would Jesus respond to this guy? Final verse. The pressing appeal, the pressing appeal of the Lord Jesus. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom. Notice the compliment in Jesus's appeal. You're not far. You are not far from the kingdom. Wow. The way you're thinking, you're not very far from the kingdom. Some people are very far in the way that they think. Some are at the threshold. The scribe is very close. He saw that uh, the scribe understood that the law was more than a system, that it was essentially spiritual. You're not far. Saying he's not far is, a, is an appeal to him. Say, Pastor, man, how in the world was this guy not far from the kingdom? Well, I'm glad you asked. Number one, he realized that loving God and humankind is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. That tells you something, doesn't it? For those who are trying to gain salvation through, through works, listen to this guy. He's near. He's not far because, number two, he's, thinking as, he, he's a thinking man. Jesus said, you answered wisely, you're thinking. He's intellectually convinced that Christ was right. Samuel Johnson said, if a man thinks deeply, he thinks religiously. So anybody who, who, who enters the kingdom are those who are willing to pause and truly think about eternal things, something we don't like to think about. Thirdly, he's in here because he faced head on the implication that love of God is the highest priority of all. That's a sobering reality because a natural man does not love God with all his heart, no matter how hard he tries. There has to be a radical change inside somebody to love God, right? That's the work of the Spirit, right? He's embracing the necessity of love. He's near. Fourthly, he's near because he's honest. This is a scribe. Scribes naturally sided with their partners. The other scribes and the Pharisees. But watch this. My young people, watch this. He did not let his natural allegiance keep him from acknowledging the truth. He's near. He's near fearfully because he's not a coward. Do you know how he's going to be talked about by the Pharisees, especially because he agrees with Jesus? The lack of courage and, and love of approval doesn't keep him from acknowledging the truth. 
He is so near. Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom. What's the kingdom? The kingdom is the rule, the reign of God, first and foremost, because, you know, the kingdom has a already, not yet aspect. Now, we will enter the kingdom, but to enter the kingdom in its consummation, you must receive the Lord of the kingdom, his reign, his rule in your heart now. Jesus says, you are not far from the kingdom. You're beginning to see. You're starting to understand what it truly means that the Lord God omnipotent is the sovereign king. But here's what I need you to understand. There's, there's something else that has to happen with this man. It's dark. He, he, he embraced right doctrine. He embraced right devotion. But right doctrine and right devotion does not equal salvation. You got to draw the, you got you, you have to draw near to Jesus. <laughs> right? He needs a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26. He, he, he needs the grace and mercy of, of God who can make him a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. He needs to draw near to Jesus who has brought the kingdom of God near. Mark 1, 15. And you draw near to the kingdom of, of Christ not by religion but by faith in a person, namely Jesus Christ. He's near. But it's not in. Don't miss that. Because that, that means a warning is implied to the readers of Mark's gospel. In this context, who are the readers of Mark's gospel? Us. Well, what's the warning, Pastor? We can be close but decisively separated. We need to understand the implications of this statement. We need, to, we need to understand the lessons. First, it's possible to have grown up in church, to have consistent godly parents, and never have come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's one lesson. See, just because your parents kept you in church all of your life doesn't make you safe. I grew up in church. Yeah. I can't recall missing five Sundays growing up as a child from the time I, you know, could understand where I am and everything, you because know, I knew I was carried as a baby. Deacon Jess can attest to that. He, he was at Carter Street. <laughs> but, you know, from, from the time I understood and realized where I was, I, I can't recall five times in my entire life growing up missing a Sunday of church. And I had to be saved. Secondly, 
it's possible to have studied theology and never be a true Christian. Some of you think, well, I, there's no way I could know what I know and not be Christian. Well, John Wesley knew the scriptures. He actually preached them. And he came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ years later. It's possible that you could know more than I know and still be unregenerate. Thirdly, it's possible to have heard the grace of Christ preached all your life and still be resting on your own goodness. If you've been in resurrected, you know, I'm not saying other churches don't, but I, I, I'm talking about this one. If you've been in resurrected for the 23 years we've been here, or for 20, or for 15, or for 10, or for five, or for one, then you've been hearing the grace of Christ preached. But you can hear the grace of Christ preached and still be resting on your own goodness. Fourthly, it is possible to become gospel hardened and seal your damnation while you sit in church every Sunday. It's possible to fool everybody, me included. I preach your funeral. I assure everybody that you're in heaven when in reality you're in hell. My sermon will mean nothing about your destination. You hear the gospel so much, so much, so much, and you get heartened to it. Oh, more gospel. I need a church that, that tells me how to do this and how to do that, how to do this, how to, how, how, how to do this. You need a church to preach the gospel. Because you can learn how to do a lot of things and still be damned. Fifthly, it's possible to be within an inch of the kingdom of God and still be lost. Jesus says you're near. You hear this truth Wednesday after Wednesday, Sunday after Sunday. Truth, convicted, but you don't act on it. You hear truth, but you don't follow it. You hear truth, but your sin has become a lingering habit. You're sitting here, but you are getting farther and farther away. Does this passage find any of you in that condition? You've been around the things of God, but you've never, you've never been saved. been a good child growing up, but you've never been saved. You need to do some holy business today. You need to do some holy business today. So, but Pastor, I don't want everybody to, everybody thinks I'm a Christian. What they think does not matter. If he doesn't know you, that loving him supremely and being most 
concern about what God thinks and what God says better supersede everybody else in here, including your pastor. I need to do some holy business today. And you, and you don't come clinging to your sin, you come in faith and repentance. Jesus gave him a compliment, but you need to see the implications of that, Mark readers. It's a strong warning, a strong warning. Lastly, the consequences of Jesus' answer. No one dared ask him any more questions. I guess not. The word dared means bold enough or having the courage. You know, the controversy started at chapter 11, verse 27. And now they're ending here in verse 34. And Jesus is going to start asking questions in verse 35. Jesus has silenced his opponent. Because the wisdom of man, when it comes up against the wisdom of God, the wisdom of man is always crushed. It's always foolish. They, all the leaders don't acknowledge it, but their silence forces them to, to acknowledge. I don't care what you ask him. He's always going to be right. Always, every time he's going to be right, no matter what you ask him. We, we, we brought to him the best minds that we have, and now this scribe is saying he's right. We're going to leave this guy alone before some of our leaders get, start following him too. <laughs> I've heard, I've heard uh, debates before against, uh, uh, between uh, atheist evolutionists and Christians. And, and I'm not just saying it because I'm a Christian, but, and I'm talking, I'm talking about these are PhD uh, uh, atheists, you know, supposedly brilliant. I, and I do, I listen to their argument. And it's not even rational. It never makes sense. And it's not that the Christian is so much more brilliant than the atheist intellectually. Uh, uh, what it is, is the Christian just sticks with the word. And whenever the, uh, the, the so-called wisdom of man comes up against the wisdom of God, the wisdom of man is always going to be seen for what it is, foolishness. And until we come to Christ, that is the totality of our lives. We are bound up in foolishness. Everybody's silent. Nobody's asking any more questions because the Lord of glory has demonstrated by his great wisdom, his great knowledge that he is indeed the Messiah. Bag up everybody and bow to him. You know what? It's good to be silent if you're meditating on the truth given to you. But it's bad to be silent like these guys are, if you stubbornly reject the truth and have nothing else to say because you don't know what to say now. 
You're not receiving it. You're still stubbornly rejecting it, and you're silent because you, don't, you just don't have anything else to say. I hope that you're meditating on the truth of the Word of God. What do we learn? We learned the love for God and love for neighbor is inseparable. We learned, we, we've learned that it's a practical cost to it. We have to love others the way we love ourselves. We've learned that it's a practical completion on these two hang all the law and all the commandments. We've learned that you can have a positive response and agree that Jesus is right and still be lost. And we've learned that the greatest love that we've ever seen came down at Christmas. and went to Calvary. And it is impossible to love people with that kind of love without receiving the love of Christ, Christ himself in your heart. You're sitting there rejecting the second commandment you might not have the first one. Oliver Cromwell, in the 16th century, England, he ordered that a soldier be shot for his crimes at the beginning of the ringing of the evening bell, you know, the big bell the beginning of the ringing of the evening bell. But that evening, when it was time for the bell to be, to be sounded, they started to ring it, but no sound came from it. The girl who was married to the condemned man who was to be killed had climbed up into the tower and clung to the great clapper of the bell to prevent it from ringing. So they were pulling it, but it was, it was bouncing her back and forth, making no sound because she just clung to it. They brought her down. And they brought her before Oliver Cromwell to give account of her actions. She was just crying. And she showed him her bruised and bleeding hands. And Cromwell was so impressed, he said to her, your lover is alive because of your sacrifice. He will not be shot. All right. All right. 
We are alive. Because he clung to the cross. All that songwriter said, he would not come down from the cross. And we are alive because uh, despite all of the mocking, despite all of the beating, despite all of the pain, despite the wrath of God coming down on him, he would not come down from the cross. I hear you, Father. He says, you all are alive because of your lover's sacrifice. Glory to God.